are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So tonight, it's the famous story of Mary and Martha. It's on our plate for the week, a story with which I have a little bit of history. In my former parish, we had a little group of women affectionately known as the Kitchen Queens. They were absolute masters at organizing events and hospitality for the parish. For funerals, they would turn out trays of elegant little finger sandwiches. For parish dinners, they would produce generous, gorgeous meals. Once a year, the kitchen queens organized this grand event in which they'd turn out hundreds of meat pies, which were then sold, always sold out, to raise money, which was dedicated to ministries and programs outside of the church walls. That kitchen ran like a sewing machine when the kitchen queens were at work, and they took enormous pride and joy in all that they did. Well, the two head kitchen queens also came every Wednesday morning to our midweek Eucharist, which we followed with a Bible study, and then lunch out at a restaurant as a group. We grew that little Wednesday morning group to about 15 people over the years I was there, as it was a really good connecting point for those folks. Well, on one of those Wednesday mornings, at our Bible study, we had before us this gospel story of Mary and Martha, which rather raised the ire of one of the kitchen queens. I've never liked this story, she said. If everyone was a Mary, How would the funeral receptions and dinners ever happen? We're not worried and distracted by many things, she continued. We're taking care of people. Then she commented on the piece that bothered her most, namely that Jesus said, quote, Mary has chosen the better part. She was fine. Well, mostly fine, that any given parish could have both Mary's and Martha's, and that both had their place. But her Martha-related way of being a part of community, organizing these events, working hard to make beautiful food, taking practical care of people in their grief, was something she just couldn't see as being a distraction lesser than those who would just want to sit at the feet of Jesus and not worry about food and hospitality. And, oh, she was fierce. I can't remember what I said in that study group, but I suspect it was something about how the two sisters reflected different spiritual orientations. Martha reflected the active mode, Mary the more contemplative. That's a venerable tradition in reading this story, almost always landing with Jesus saying that Mary's contemplative choice was the better part. 
What I do remember is that whatever the answer was that I offered, it wasn't worth a thing to that kitchen queen. (laughs) Seeing the story as a reflection on action and contemplation is one way of thinking about the text, but ultimately it isn't all that satisfactory. What's far more compelling comes courtesy of N.T. Wright in his Luke for Everyone commentary. In his comments, Bishop Wright really drills down on some issues that we, as modern readers, wouldn't tend to see. The real problem, he writes, the real problem was that Mary was behaving as if she were a man. In that culture, as in many parts of the world to this day, houses were divided into male space and female space. And male and female roles were strictly demarcated as well. Mary had crossed an invisible but very important boundary within the house and another equally important boundary within the social world. Now, think about that for a moment. As Luke casts his story, it takes place as Jesus and his disciples are journeying from place to place, with Jesus teaching and healing as they go. They've now stopped at the home of Mary and Martha, which we know from other stories in the Gospels, had become a familiar place of respite, of rest for Jesus. The male disciples are all around listening as Jesus teaches. But instead of staying safely in the female space, Mary transgresses the boundary, situates herself very clearly in the male space at the feet of the teacher. Her sister Martha is completely flustered by this, not simply because she's left alone in the kitchen, but because Mary had transgressed that well-established boundary in their social world. So Bishop Wright continues, to sit at the feet of a rabbi was what you did if you wanted to be a rabbi. There is no thought here of learning for learning's sake. Mary has quietly taken her place as a would-be teacher and preacher for the kingdom of God. This, I think, is the most brilliantly scandalous thing about what Mary is doing here, namely to respond to what Bishop Wright calls the boundary-breaking call of Jesus. And I think that this is made clear by looking at the original Greek that's translated here as the better part. Mary's taking the better part. But it's actually more directly translated as that good part. Interestingly, that good part is how the King James Version deals with the Greek words. Ten agathen marida, or that good part. Part. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. She is, in short, beginning to recognize Jesus' invitation to transgress boundaries and to be prepared to tell 
and retell his story, whoever might receive it, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Interestingly, there's another set of boundary-breaking transgressions at work in today's reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians. It began, as Gladiola read, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. The opening portion of this section that we read tonight consists of six verses that form a kind of a poem or a song that stands on its own. Some scholars have speculated that it's a poem that was already circulating in that region and that Paul was citing it to build his case for the glory of Christ. Whether or not it's from Paul's hand or someone else's is actually not all that consequential. But what's clear is that it does stand on its own as a bold proclamation that says it is not Caesar who is in charge, but rather it is God in and through Christ. In the words of Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kismat in their book, Colossians Remixed, they write, in a world populated by images of Caesar, who is taken to be the Son of God or the gods, a world in which the emperor's preeminence over all things is bolstered by political structures and institutions, an empire that views Rome as the head of the body politic, in which an imperial peace is imposed, sometimes through the capital punishment of crucifixion, this poem is nothing less than treasonous. In the space of a short, well-crafted three-stanza poem, Paul subverts every major claim of the empire, turning them on their heads and proclaims Christ to be the creator, redeemer, and lord of all creation, including the empire. Paul subverts every major claim of the empire, they say, which is another way of saying, Jesus is lord, Caesar is not. And Jesus is Lord not because he's conquered Caesar with the power of the sword in a revolutionary uprising, but rather by making peace through the blood of his cross. Caesar still sits on the throne of the empire, and that throne will, host, will be host to many an emperor over the next several hundred years. And yet Paul would say that such is not true lordship. We've had countless kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, chairmen and dictators over the centuries, but to each of them Paul would say simply, Jesus is Lord, you are not and cannot be Lord. 
You cannot be because, quote, he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When Mary came out of the kitchen and sat with the disciples at the feet of Jesus, those men surely exchanged incredulous glances, while Martha's jaw dropped in astonishment and worry. When the new Christians in Colossae sat to hear Paul's words from his letter read to them aloud, and they heard those words, in him all things hold together, there would have been gasps all around that room. But, but, what, but what about Caesar? We often forget the audacity of the claims that we read in our scriptures on a Sunday night. We leave our hearing of scriptures too often just to Sundays rather than immersing ourselves in them and enacting them, living into their claims each and every day of the week, the month, and the years. We are yet called to transgress boundaries, to dare to live out the deeper story, just as Mary began to do when she sat with the men and absorbed Jesus' stories and teaching. May we all find that courage. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.